Have you ever left your house, gone on a trip, and realized that you've left something? <laughs> you ever been in that position where, ah, oh, it's just too late to turn around now? <laughs> kind of have to grit your teeth and go for it. There, a couple of weekends ago, actually, this was back in September. Uh, Debbie and I, we had a trip. It was the last of the series of several trips to California that we had to plan. And this was a, oh, it was a big one. It was a, a trip to officiate a wedding of a, of a friend of ours from back in the day. And uh, there were just a lot of logistics to figure out because I needed to get there a certain day. Debbie and the kids couldn't get there until later on. And so we figured out different airports, different uh, rental car arrangements and things like that. Just a lot of things to figure out. In fact, um, we even figured out beforehand, like what clothes we would wear at the wedding. So we would color coordinate, you know, it was that kind of a trip. You know, we just had to uh, just work out all the, de- we even got those clothes dry cleaned before so that we could pick them. Anyways, all these kinds of things. And so when we got there, it was, uh, you know, it was one of those trips that we couldn't really just relax. We just needed to get from one place to the other, from one appointment to the next. And um, it was the day of the wedding. And um, we started driving out <clears throat> from the friend's house that we were staying at. We actually uh, hung out with Rick and Heidi Madrid. You guys remember them? Yeah, so we stayed with them overnight. It was such a blessing. They miss us, by the way. They miss the church, and I, I told them that the church missed them. Um, but yeah, as we left their house, we were already probably an hour away. And it was the day of the wedding, and we realized, or Debbie turned to me and she said, Did you get the hanging clothes in the closet? <laughs> You know, the clothes that we got dry cleaned. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> Anyways, we looked in the back and we got some of the clothes, but not all of them. And uh, it turned out that we left the, the dress at the house. <laughs> and, uh, you know, fortunately, um, fortunately, Debbie's just lovely all the time. And she, you know, <laughs> she had her clothes from church and stuff. And so anyways, she was able to roll with it. But um, it was just one of those moments where my, where my gut kind of fell. Oh, man, I think I'm missing something. I think I'm missing something. It's, it's not a good feeling. It's not a good feeling to, to put forth all this effort, to do everything right, to get things right in order, and then still be missing something. In the book of Acts, Paul finds a group of people who had done a lot of things right, but they were still missing something. Let's go there together. Acts chapter 19. They were missing something vital, missing something that they, they couldn't do without. So let's go there together. Acts chapter 19. Beginning in verse 1 is where we're going. Paul encounters a group of disciples. They were Ephesians. Uh, they, they lived in the town of Ephesus. And they wanted to know they wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to, to, to do everything according to what they had been taught by a preacher named Apollos. But when Paul finds them, he finds that there's something missing. So let's go there. If you're there, say amen. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says this. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to where? 
He came to Ephesus, all right? This is his third missionary journey. He's already come back to home base twice, and now he's going back a third time to circuit through all these different towns to strengthen the disciples, according to Acts chapter 18, I think is where it talks about that. Acts chapter 18, verse 23. But here he lands in Ephesus, he comes there, and then at the end of verse 1, it says this, And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you believed. Now, I don't know about you, but this is kind of an odd greeting, right? (laughs) Usually it's, hey, there's disciples. How are you? Or happy Sabbath or, you know, whatever the case might be. But here's Paul's question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Then notice their response. So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. This is a group of followers of disciples so named or so called that, and they are missing something vital. We haven't even heard that there is something, whether there is a Holy Spirit. In verse three, it says, he said to them, Paul said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said into John's baptism. In other words, the ministry of John the Baptist, they're talking about being followers of his teaching, followers of his way. And then in verse four, then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on who? On Christ Jesus. Ah, this is a really interesting exchange, really interesting encounter that Paul has. They're obviously missing something, but when you look at, at Paul's penetrating question, he is getting right to the point. There is something in their lives, or at least the lack of something in their lives, that gave Paul rise to concern, uh, and a recognition that something was not right. And his question is regarding the Holy Spirit. And my question today is, when Paul asks this, To these Ephesian believers, what is it that he knows about the Holy Spirit that they don't? What is Paul's understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And I think there are two things, at least just from the question itself. Go again to verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I think just from that question alone, there are two things that Paul knows about the Holy Spirit. One, that the Holy Spirit yields evidence in the life. Like the fact that he can look at someone, look at someone's life, listen to how they're living, uh, and, and just read a, a life, it indicates to the, uh, to, to the reader that, okay, Paul understands that when the Holy Spirit is in someone's life, it should yield evidence. Okay, there, there should be fruit in the life. We're not told what he observed or what he didn't observe, but there was enough evidence for Paul to conclude that the spiritual experience of the twelve here was lacking. It was insufficient. It was incomplete. In other words, um, if you're happy and you know it, your face will surely show it, right? If the Holy Spirit is with you, your life will surely show it, right? That's what we're talking about. I think that's what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 5. These are the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all these things. So Paul knew that when, when the Holy Spirit comes into someone's life, he yields evidence in the life. But the second thing is this, that the Holy Spirit takes residence in the life of every believer, of every believer. How many believers? 
every believer. I mean, otherwise, Paul wouldn't ask that question, right? <laughs> Had he not assumed that, that the Holy Spirit is promised, is given to every believer, he wouldn't have asked this, this, this penetrating, poignant question. When you believe, that's his question, right? Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Paul had an expectation that all believers should receive the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if you realize this, but that expectation, that is a New Testament phenomenon. Do you hear what I'm saying? In the Old Testament, you think about how many times the Holy Spirit filling or coming upon someone is mentioned in Scripture in the Old Testament. Honestly, it's kind of few and far between. Was the Holy Spirit present? Was the Holy Spirit at work in people's lives? Yes. Yes. But uh, really, you only find a few occasions like Samson, for example. The Holy Spirit came upon Samson. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul and he prophesied. The Holy Spirit was upon Elijah and Elisha asked for a double portion of the Holy Spirit, right? And there's, a, there's an instance actually where, where Moses, in, uh, as he's leading the children of Israel through, through the wilderness, it's recorded in Numbers chapter 11. God tells Moses, hey, I'm going to, uh, why, why don't you gather the 70 elders and I'm going to take of the spirit that is upon you and give, it, give the spirit to the 70 elders. And when that happens, there's only 68 of the 70 that come together. You remember this story? There's only 68 of the elders that come together. The Holy Spirit is given to these 68 and they begin to prophesy. It's, pretty, it's a pretty incredible story. The two that didn't come to the gathering, they were in the camp somewhere, but they also were prophesying. And Joshua, his assistant, runs up to Moses and says, hey, there's two elders that they're they have the Holy Spirit. They're prophesying too, but they're not here. Do you want me to tell them to stop? And Moses puts his hand up and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you jealous for my sake? No, I wish, I wish, he said, that all God's people would experience this too. In other words, even though the Holy Spirit was active in people's lives, at that time, it wasn't a general expectation that everyone would be filled or come upon by the Holy Spirit. This is really interesting, which is why in Joel chapter 2, when Joel has this prophecy, he says, In the last days, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. That would be a new dynamic. And when was that prophecy fulfilled? Anybody remember? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching. And this is the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was crucified. And it says this, or this is Peter preaching to the people as, as the Holy Spirit came upon them. It says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on how much? On all flesh. This is a New Testament dynamic. Paul carries this on. A few years later, now he's in Ephesus, and the, the Holy Spirit has created a ripple effect, a huge impact, not just there in Jerusalem, here in Acts chapter 2, it's just in Jerusalem, but now it's, it, it's spreading all over the place. And Paul, when he finds this group of believers, they haven't quite caught on. They haven't quite caught on. So when he comes to them with this question, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It was an expectation that they didn't have. I wonder today, do we have the same expectation that Paul had of the Holy Spirit's work? Do we expect the Holy Spirit to be at work in the life of every believer? You know, apparently, according to Acts chapter 19, it is possible 
to call ourselves disciples and yet be ignorant of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. That should be a sobering reality, a sobering reality check as we read this story. Wait, how could they miss it? I mean, they experienced repentance. They experienced baptism. You know, we know, I think, you know, Jesus teaches in in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, the Holy Spirit leads sinners to become believers. Amen? (laughs) But did you know that the Holy Spirit leads believers to bear fruit in their life? Did you, did you know that the Holy Spirit's work does not stop at the point of belief, but continues to work beyond the mere experience of, of as these disciples experienced, the mere experience of, of repentance? See, the Ephesian disciples were missing this. They had been led to the point of belief. They had been led to the point of experience, but they hadn't received the Spirit to do the Spirit's work beyond that. And I would hate for any of us to find ourselves in that boat completely ignorant, missing something about what the Holy Spirit wants to do in the life, not just to lead us to belief, but in the life of the believer beyond it. Yeah. The Ephesian disciples were missing it. They needed the Holy Spirit. They needed revival. And this revival wasn't an experience that they lost or needed to regain or reclaim or recover. This was an experience they didn't even know about. (laughs) And so the rest of the story it has a happy ending here. It says, when they heard this, this is verse 5, going back to Acts chapter 19. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. And it says this down in verse 10. And this continued, this, this discipling relationship between Paul and these 12 disciples. This continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Woo-hoo. <laughs> Man, the revival they experienced had eternal impact throughout the entire region of Asia Minor. That's powerful. That's what happens when revival takes place. That's what happens when we yield ourselves to the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, uh, Paul's relationship here with the disciples in Ephesus, like we said, or like we read, uh, it, it lasted for two years that Paul was there. Usually Paul was here and there for a few days, for a few months, for a few weeks. But, man, he, he settled down. <laughs> I mean, two years doesn't sound like very long. But really, he settled down here to do some serious discipling ministry. But Paul's relationship with the Ephesians didn't stop there. Paul actually wrote to the Ephesians uh, a a very, very powerful letter that we know as the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians. And in that letter, Paul highlights the work of the Holy Spirit. No surprise. Why would he do that? Why would he? So that they would not go back to an experience of missing something. Right. So today, what I want us to do is actually go to the book of Ephesians and look at those references to the Holy Spirit. And so go ahead and turn with me there. Ephesians, and we'll start in Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul is going to highlight the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit that we ought not to forget, ought not to be ignorant of. Three experiences is what we're going to find. Three experiences to keep us from missing out on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. When you're there, say, I found it. All right. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 13. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says this, In him, speaking about Jesus, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. I wonder if he's thinking about that experience when he first met those, those 12 disciples there. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the who? With the Holy Spirit of promise. And then notice verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now, I'll be the first to admit, sometimes when I read the letters of Paul, I feel like I'm reading a, uh, just like this super eloquent, deep theological treatise that I, it takes maybe three or four times to actually read there to figure out what he's saying. But let's just kind of break it down, what he's talking about in terms of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. It says this, um, one, one, one critical thing is this, that having believed, in verse 13, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. All right, we're going to look at three experiences, three dynamics of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the first one is simply this, that the believer is sealed by the Holy Spirit. The believer is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Again, in that, in that verse, in verse 13, it says, having believed. So the Holy Spirit doesn't just lead us to the point of belief, but does it work beyond that point in the experience of belief. He does a work in those who believe. What work is that? According to this verse, the Holy Spirit seals the believer's heart. The Holy Spirit seals us. Sealed with the Holy Spirit. You know, when you think about the ancient Near East and first century uh, uh, Mediterranean life, uh, Palestinian experience, just that culture. Um, what, what did they use seals for? Uh, what we're talking about is not a living organism seal kind of thing. We're talking about a, a, a tool, a tool that was common, commonly placed on official documents, official letters, even official tombstones. You remember that the, the Roman seal was put on the tomb of Christ. What were the seals for? To seal something was to indicate authority and who this belongs to. Think about that. You put seals on things that are yours. It's like when you take your favorite ball to the playground. You want to make sure to take a sharpie to it and write your name on it so that you know and everybody else knows whose ball that is. The Holy Spirit's work, part of it, is to actually indicate who you are belong to who you belong to. This is so powerful to me. I don't know if you realize this, but you upon, when you place your trust and your faith in Jesus, when you come to the cross and say, Jesus is mine and I am his, you become a child of God. First John chapter three says, behold, what manner of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16, if you have notes, go ahead and write this one down. This is one worth memorizing. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again, to fear, but you received the spirit of what? Adoption. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, that's, that's another, uh, it's kind of an endearing term for father, like daddy, papa. 
by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit doesn't make us fearful in God's presence. The Spirit makes us assured in God's presence that we belong to him and he belongs to us. I think it's the next verse that says this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I love it. When Paul is saying, hey, when you believed, you were sealed, you, be, you belong, you were affixed, adhered to the side of Jesus as his child, the spirit of adoption. But the rest of the verse, uh, back to Ephesians chapter one, it says, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of what? Of promise. So he, he gives us this sense of identity, but he also gives us a sense of anticipation. Anticipation of what? Verse 14, who is the guarantee or down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Think about this. The Holy Spirit, he, he seals your life and says, you belong to God. You are his child. You are his son. You are his daughter. And then the Holy Spirit gives you this sense of future destiny. Hey, wait. I'm with you now. God is with you now, but this is just a taste of what's to come. You will eventually be with God face to face like a down payment, like a guarantee. It says, you know, a down payment, when you pay a down payment for a car or a house or whatever the case, you're giving a little to guarantee that the rest is coming. The Holy spirit gives us God's presence now in the here and now to guarantee that the rest is coming. Do you follow that? That's, the, that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does in your life. He assures us of who we are and where we're going. Who we are and where we're going. I am convinced that a lot of life's disappointments and shortcomings can be rooted to, or you know, the pathology can be found all the way down to somewhere along the line, forgetting who we are and where we're going. Think about this. I mean, imagine how you would live if you constantly knew that you were a son or daughter of God. How would you talk to people? How would you interact with, how, how would you make decisions? How would you uh, respond to temptations or challenges or difficulty if you constantly were aware, I am a child of God and I am headed to live eternally with God. If you constantly knew who you were and where you were headed, I think life would be a little bit different right? But it's when we forget. It's when we grow distracted. It's when we grow unbelieving of who we are and where we're headed. That life seems to become a little bit more filled with, with, with failure. Um, th- there's a, an experience that Jesus had. <laughs> I mean, he is someone who, who really had the world's pressures upon him. And in John 13, actually, so hold, hold a finger here in Ephesians 1. Quickly go to John 13. This is really cool. I don't think I have it on the screen. John 13, everything is kind of coming to a head. He's about to enter into the, you know, the last scenes of his life, the hour, according to, to John, you know? Um, and in John 13, he's about to enter into the upper room for the last time with the disciples. The narrative beginning in verse one, two, and then into three, it's, it's so weighty. Um, now, before the feast of the Passover, I'm starting in verse one. If you're there, say amen. 
All right, all right. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. All right. So everything is kind of building up. Man, this is super significant, what he's about to do. Verse 2. Supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. I mean, you think about everything that was going on, swimming around in Jesus. Oh man, this is it. This is it. And he's looking around at his 12 disciples and he knows that one of them is about to betray them. He knows that one of them is about to deny him. He knows all these things are about to happen. How does he have the gumption to keep going and to press forward and say, you know what? This is my, my destiny. This is, this is all right. Let's do this. How does he know it? How does he do it? I think verse three is really key that he had come. He knew that he had come from God and was going to God. In other words, he knew who he was and he knew where he was going. When the Holy Spirit seals our hearts, he gives us assurance of who we are and where we're going so that we can live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. To love people to the end. That, that's pretty incredible to me. We can live with the love and purpose of Jesus. Every believer is sealed with the spirit of adoption. That's an awesome privilege, amen? Amen. I don't know, am I the only person that's excited about that? That's an awesome privilege, and we need to be reminded of it. That's why, okay, flipping back to Ephesians, that's why he's reminding the Ephesian disciples about their experience when they believed. But there's still more, right? There's still more. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to find another dynamic of the work of the Spirit. Not just that the believer is sealed by the Spirit, but the believer is also strengthened through the Holy Spirit. So Ephesians now, chapter 3, and we're, we're looking at a prayer that Paul is praying for the believers in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 3, and let's start in verse 14. We'll go all the way to verse 17. Just an awesome, awesome prayer. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, the Bible says this, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this isn't just sitting around the table. This is how he prays. No, no, this is when he's like fully engaged, war room mode, so to speak, right? He's on his knees. This is how he prays. From verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. What does he pray? Verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? Well, one, we know that he seals us. He seals us with the identity that we belong to God and the destiny that we're going to God. All right? But he also strengthens us. The Holy Spirit strengthens us. What kind of experience with the Holy Spirit is Paul really praying for when he prays this for not just the Ephesian believers, but when we pray this for ourselves, I would say this, that, that Paul is praying for a growing experience. You follow what I mean? A growing experience. The fact that he says that you be strengthened indicates progress, indicates going from strength to strength. It's, it's an ever-broadening experience, an ever-deepening experience, a, a, an experience with God that never remains stagnant. Do you pray for that for yourself sometimes? Yeah. Like you realize where you've kind of peaked or plateaued and you, 
you just want more. That's what Paul is praying for, that they would have a, that they would be strengthened, a growing experience. But it says this, that you would be strengthened with what? What does your Bible say right there in verse 16? To be strengthened with might. Yeah, might. The Greek word there is dunamis. It's the word that we get dynamite from. That you'd be strengthened with dynamite. All right? That's, that's pretty hefty. Yeah. Dynamite has the ability to change the very landscape of things when it's set off in the right place. It, It makes things go away completely. It obliterates things. It just, it doesn't just modify things or, or, or beautify things. Dynamite transforms things. And so when Paul is praying for strengthening with might, he's praying for a growing experience, but he's also praying for a dynamite experience. A transforming experience. Dynamite, he prays not just for a modification of our inner life, but a complete overhaul. And I like the fact that when he's praying this, strengthened with might through his spirit, where? In the inner man. In the inner man. You know, I think a lot of times we direct our prayers for things to change, to be overhauled around us, and not so much in us. Whether it's behaviors um, of, of yourself or even of other people, whether it's habits or hurtful circumstances, we want things to change around us, but really what we need to blow up, to, to overhaul, is what's in us. Especially if those things around us or people around us or circumstances around us have done hurtful or damaging things in us. We need to be strengthened with might in the inner man in the inner man. And so that's what Paul is praying for. So we, we pray for uh, to be strengthened through the Holy Spirit. We also pray to be sealed by the Holy Spirit. And as believers, we can be reminded of that. We can, we can pray for continual growth. We can pray for continual strengthening, but there's still more. There's still more. Go with me now to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter 5, and this will be the last part that we, we look at. And, and this is by no means an exhaustive study of the work of the Holy Spirit, um, but this highlights what Paul was going at for those Ephesian believers who knew what it was to miss the Holy Spirit altogether. All right, so sealed with the Spirit, strengthened with the Spirit, but the believer is also filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 18, this is kind of in the middle of Paul's overall thought, but I really want to zero in here at just even one phrase in verse 18. Verse 18 says this, And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. In other words, don't get intoxicated. Don't become under the influence of something else, unless it's the Spirit. Notice verse 18. But, or instead, be filled with the who? the spirit. He communicates this not as a reminder, like he did about the Holy Spirit sealing us. He communicates this not as a prayer or a hope as he did for the Holy Spirit strengthening us, but he communicates this now as a command. (laughs) Do you notice that? An appeal. This is the climax of Paul's teaching regarding the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about that. Carnal Christians are insufficiently filled. Spiritual Christians are 
completely filled. What does that mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, one, we know it's in contrast to the experience of being intoxicated, inebriated, under the influence. When we're filled with the Spirit, then, that means that the whole life is under the sway and influence of the Holy Spirit. It means that the whole life is affected. Our behaviors change. Things are, our, our, our mental thinking is altered. <laughs> it means that we're under the full sway and control of the Holy Spirit. And the implication is then that we are filled thoroughly. Do you follow that? We're filled thoroughly, not just in part or not just in measure. There's a really interesting thing. In John chapter 3, when John the Baptist is, is being questioned about who he is and what his ministry is all about, He's talking about how Jesus is the bridegroom. I'm sorry, how Jesus is the groom and he is just the, the, the friend of the groom, kind of introducing the groom to the bride and all these kinds of things. He must increase, I must decrease. And when, he's, when John the Baptist is talking about the ministry of Jesus, he says that the Holy Spirit is on him. He speaks the words of God. And then in John chapter 3, verse 34, John makes a very interesting observation about how God gives the Holy Spirit. He says, God does not give the spirit by what? By measure. What does that mean? God does not give the spirit by measure. Think of the last time you measured something. (laughs) Maybe you were making oatmeal this morning and you were measuring out how much water to add to those oats. Or, you know, the other day, Jaden was helping out his mom uh, make some bread. And so he was learning to top off the tablespoon, you know, so that it was just the right amount. In other words, when you measure something, you only need that much and no more. But when God gives the Holy Spirit, he doesn't give you a measure and no more. The NIV translates this phrase, God gives the spirit without limit. Boom. Ah. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is not just to be filled in part or just to have a tablespoon or a cup or a cup and a half, whatever the case. No, it's to be filled, thoroughly filled, thoroughly filled with the Holy Spirit. But I want to caution here because as we talk about being filled with the Spirit, thoroughly with the Spirit, you know, things like that, there is this tendency to think of the Holy Spirit in terms of quantity. Okay? But that's not the case at all. The Holy Spirit is not a commodity that we can have much or little of. The question is, how much does the Holy Spirit have of me? (laughs) That's a mic drop moment right there. (laughs) Okay? In other words, the point of the appeal, I was reading a book by Leroy Froome called The Coming of the Comforter, and he says it like this, that the, uh, the point of the appeal is to not just have the Spirit, but for the Spirit to have us fully. That book that we gave out a few weeks ago by Helmut Haubeil, uh, Steps to Personal Revival, he says it like this on page 59. Being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean that we quantitatively have more of Him, but rather that the Spirit has more and more of us. To be filled with the Spirit is to give yourself fully to Him. Nothing held back. Ah, I want that. <laughs> to be filled with the Spirit, I want to give myself completely to Him. Hey, I, I, I think this, this appeal, though simple in nature, five words, I think it is, be filled with the Spirit. Yeah, five words only, but there are some significant observations we need to make about this. Be filled is a command that is, is huge, okay? So let's just notice a few things and draw out some implications here. First of all, be filled. It is an imperative, right? 
When we say it's an imperative, yeah, sure, we say, oh, it's imperative that you go here or there. It, it's a necessity. You've, you've got to do it. No, but what we're talking about is it's a command. Okay? So, yes, it's a must. Yes, it's a necessity. But what it's really saying is it's our responsibility. When you give a command to someone, you can't force them to follow through with it. When you give a command to someone, you're putting the ball in their court. It's an appeal to their will to say yes or no to it. Do you follow that? Yeah. Okay. So one, it's an imperative, meaning it's an appeal to our will and choice. It doesn't happen automatically. Being filled isn't something that we can assume or presume to, to be our experience. To be filled means it's the believer's responsibility. To be filled. Nobody else can do this for us, right? It, it must be our responsibility. But not only is be filled an imperative, but be filled is also in the passive voice. Did you notice that? Paul doesn't just say fill yourself. He says be filled. Meaning the, that even though it's our responsibility to be filled, it's not in our capacity to fill ourselves. The ability comes from God's, and that's, that's his sovereignty there, right? Um, to be filled, it's, it's, it's our responsibility, but it's not in our capacity. We must be filled by God. And again, Helmut Heibel says it really well here. No person can fill themselves with the Holy Ghost. This is exclusively the work of the Holy Ghost. But the individual should create the conditions so that the Holy Ghost can fill him. Ooh, that is deep. And yeah, we will actually talk about conditions next time. All right. Conditions. What are those heart conditions? That, that will be our focus. But again, our responsibility. Yes, it's our responsibility to say yes to be to being filled, but it's not in our capacity to fill ourselves. We must go to God for that. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Okay. So be filled is an imperative. It's also passive, but be filled is also in the present. It's present tense. And this isn't so much something that you see. I mean, yeah, you know, it says be filled, but in the Greek, uh, when a command is in the present tense, it means something different when a command is in the aorist tense. An aorist uh, is used to, to indicate a command that is to be obeyed on the spot at that point of time in one point of time. When the present tense is used, it's talking about an ongoing command. Not just be filled today, but be filled every day. <laughs> Not just be filled once, but again and again and again. You follow? Yeah? Like we were talking about a few weeks ago, ask, seek, knock. You know, in Luke chapter 11, it's keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> It's not the one-time deal. It's the continuous experience. The appeal is to keep being filled repeatedly, continuously. Why is it that we need this appeal over and over and over again? Is it because that God is unwilling to give us the Holy Spirit and we need to keep being filled? We need to keep asking him about it? No, 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 no. It's because, one, we're leaky vessels. <laughs> you know, I think it's Second Corinthians chapter 4 that says that we're jars of clay. We're porous. We're broken. We need the Holy Spirit more and more. Every single You may have asked once before, but we're going to need to keep asking again and again. I think the other reason why Paul tells us to keep asking to be filled or to keep being filled is because it gives us the capacity to keep giving to other people. You know, In John chapter 7, Jesus says, If any man comes after me, and if any man thirsts and comes after me, uh, he 
he will drink of, of the water of life and out of his heart, rivers of living water will flow out. <laughs> in other words, when someone comes to belief in Jesus, when someone is thirsty and recognizes their need for Jesus and they actually come to me, man, they're going to become a life spring for other people. They're going to be continually giving out. How is that possible unless we're continually being filled? Yeah. So it's in the, it's in the imperative. It's a passive. It's in the present. But here's another one. Be filled is in the plural. You can't see it here in the English. But again, it's not a command to one person. It's a command to all people. Be filled. He wasn't just talking to, to the leader of the Ephesian church. He wasn't just talking to the, the ministry volunteers of the Ephesian church. He was talking to all of the Ephesian church. It applies to all, not just a few, not just to those special duties in the church, but to all who follow Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the book, The Acts of the Apostles by Ellen White. Powerful, okay? Must read chapter. I think it's chapter five. It's called The Gift of the Spirit. But from this chapter, there's some really awesome things. Just regarding this idea that the Holy Spirit is not limited to any particular age or group of people, but it's, it's, the Holy Spirit is given to all. <laughs> Starting on page 49, it says, From the day of Pentecost to the present time. Again, kind of what we were talking about. It's a New Testament phenomenon. From the day of Pentecost to the present time, the Comforter has been sent to how many? To all who have yielded themselves fully to the Lord and to his service. To all who have accepted Christ as a personal Savior, the Holy Spirit has come as a counselor, sanctifier, guide, and witness. And here's the last I mean, I've totally deleted a whole bunch of stuff here, but just for the sake of conciseness here, if the fulfillment of the promise is not seen as it might be, it is because the promise is not appreciated as it should be. If all were willing, all would be filled with the Spirit. Mm. If all were willing, all would be filled with the Spirit. Be filled. Steps to personal revival as we've been going through it. Number one, a few weeks ago, just ask. The second one, open the heart door. Don't leave Jesus standing on the outside. Third, be filled. Be filled. Question today, are you a believer? Have you believed? If you are, are you a believer who has yielded, like we read uh, just a few slides earlier, who has yielded, who has accepted, who is, who is willing? Are you a believer who is willing to be filled? God wants you to be sealed by the Spirit. God wants us to be strengthened through the Spirit. God wants us to be filled with His Spirit, not by measure, not in part, not topping it off and saying that's all you need. No, but, but without limit, continuously, personally, not filling ourselves, but filling, but ourselves choosing to seek, to ask, and to give ourselves wholly to Him. Be filled. Be filled. Be filled. Today, as we wrap it up, I think uh, the most appropriate response here would be to pray. I mean, I know we pray at the end of every sermon and stuff, but I, I think the um, appropriate response to this message is to pray and ask to be filled. So if it's your desire to be a believer who has accepted Christ, who has yielded to Christ, who is willing to be filled, let's pray. Let's pray. 
I want to give you a couple of minutes. Maybe you want to pray by yourself. Maybe you want to pray with your family that's next to you. Maybe you want to just, just introduce yourself to the person that's next to you and say, hey, look, I need someone to pray with me. I'm not even sure how to pray. It's not like we need to be eloquent at this point. We just need to ask to be filled. So let's take a couple of minutes right where you are. Or if you want to get up and find someone on the other side of the room, that's totally cool. We'll take a few minutes. And let's respond. Let's, let's tell God, yes, please fill me today. Go ahead, take a few minutes, and then we're going to sing a song to close. <laughs>